At one time in American history, we had to take a good long look at ourselves every four years and ask a few questions. Where do we want to go? Who do we want to become? What do we want to do as a people? And then normally there were two main people and then there were kind of three and four that nobody really thought about or cared about. And they would say, hey, I'm the person to, to, to guide us. I'm the person that has enough power in Washington that I, I, can, I can sort out how to get through the legislation that we need done. And not only do I have enough power, but I also have the wisdom to know what we need to do as a country and the justice to do the right thing. And then there would be these debates between two people. Some of us remember what that used to feel like. I wish that we still had it in some way. Because what do we know we want in a leader? We want someone who has power, someone who can get a job done. You know, it, it, it's not enough to just say, I know where we ought to go. I have the right ideas. If you have no power to accomplish them, you're worthless. You can't do anything. But there's also the reality that if somebody has the power to do what they want, but no concept of goodness or justice or wisdom, they can guide us places, but it's not where we ought to go. And we see increasingly in our society and in our world, whether that's in our offices or in our churches, in our governance, in our cities, a lack of this coming together of power and wisdom, of capacity injustice. And we're all longing for someone to guide us, someone to lead us, someone to direct us, and they actually know where we ought to go. Well, as we continue in our sermon series through Isaiah chapter 40, we're now hitting verses 12 through 14. And in, this, in these verses, what we see is God, who promises to liberate his people out, uh, out of this Babylonian captivity. You know, the Babylonians have, have sent most of their people in exile, and now they are infiltrating the land, particularly in the southern kingdom of Judea. And God promises them liberation. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to defeat the Babylonians. I'm going to purify the land. And how does he describe himself in these three verses? He describes himself as the one who has absolute power, and perfect wisdom and justice. He is the one who, can't, who doesn't just make empty promises. When he says he will liberate his people, he has the power to do it. And he has the power that once he's liberated them, he can govern them justly. So if you would, turn with me to Isaiah 40, verses 12 through 14, where today we're going to look at, at these attributes of God. That God is the one who has perfect power, and he is the one who has perfect wisdom and justice. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. You know, our section begins with what this Old Testament theologian named Alec uh, Motier calls the Hebrew idiom of totality expressed by contrast. It's totality expressed by contrast. 
He says, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? What, is it, what does this contrast reveal? Not only at the very beginning, we see that the waters are always contrasted with the heavens, but what do the waters represent in the Hebrew mind? As deep as you can get. They represent depth. Because especially as they're on the Mediterranean, they can't figure out how deep it is. And not only it's so deep, but then there's all these things swimming around in it that they call Leviathan that terrify them. It reveals the depth of the world. And then obviously, what can God do? He can hold it in his hand. It has no depth to him. He stands not within it, but he stands outside of it. And not only that, we see that the heavens, he can mark off with the span. And what that probably means is, is it's pointing to a seamstress who can measure between her thumb and pinky finger. That'd be about a span. So the heavens themselves are so small to him, they're smaller than a human hand. They're smaller than a woman's hand. And so what is being revealed here? The categories of as deep as it gets and as high as it gets, they're meaningless to God. But then it goes on further. The scriptures say that God has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. What do we see between these two things? Dust is as small as you can get, and a mountain is as big as you can get. Think about that. Dust is when rocks get really, really tiny, and a mountain is when rocks get really, really big. You know, we don't tend to think in physical categories, but the Jewish mind always thinks in physical categories. So what is the scripture saying? God can measure these things completely. He knows them so intimately that he can measure them like in a scale. He stands above them, outside of them, so they are nothing to him. Now, why is this important and why is God going into this? Because if you remember, God is promising liberation for his people. He is promising that the Babylonians are going to get cast out of the kingdom and he's going to restore the land. But you have to know a little bit about how the ancient people thought about the gods, and particularly about warfare. Have any of you read the Iliad or the Odyssey? Right? The Iliad in particular is what? It is kind of a redundant book. It is just one battle scene after another after another. And they're kind of like martial arts battle scenes where everybody just fades into the background and two men fight each other, right? But if you really see what's going on in that book, behind the scenes... Behind the flesh and blood of two men fighting each other are always gods fighting each other. This is a battle not between flesh and blood, but between gods. And so whenever a kingdom lost in a battle, it was viewed that the other conquering kingdom must have had a stronger god. And so what would be assumed or what would have gone through the Hebrew mind is maybe Yahweh's not as powerful as we had thought. Or maybe the Babylonian gods... Maybe they're actually more strong than we had thought. And so when Isaiah comes upon the scene, what is he saying? He's saying that when God promises liberation for his people, it's not going to be a battle. There's no way that the Babylonians even have a chance. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to come and try and do my best and let's see if I can beat these guys. When he proclaims liberation, it's as good as reality itself. And then he describes himself as this one who isn't within creation. 
He's not one who's like, you know, I'm stronger than Zeus so I can get the job done, right? That's often how we view God's power. We view God's power as he's the most strong of all the beings, but he's definitely one of them amongst beings. He's just stronger than the other gods. But what we see in this beautiful image is he isn't within the created order as the strongest person in the created realm. Rather, he stands outside of it and above it so that the expanse of the heavens, they're nothing to him. The depth of the sea, it's nothing to him. The, the, the smallest thing and the biggest thing, they're nothing to him because his power is so magnificent, so great, so outside of our realm of understanding that he isn't in a battle with the Babylonians. The minute he promises liberation, it's as good as done. Now, I think I'd like to do a bit of theologizing with you today. Today's going to be somewhat heavy theology. So if you're a visitor here, welcome. Um, we, We do care about theology, but today's probably even more theological than normal, which is probably saying something. But I'd like to just do a little bit of teaching on When we say that God is powerful, what do we mean by that? Because normally our brains immediately jump to idolatry. Our most simple way to understand God as being powerful, right, is what? A man floating in the clouds, you know, and he's like a big watchmaker and he's really strong and he can do whatever he wants. Um, But that's, that's an idol. That's not who God is. Now, the next thing I want to say is everything I'm about to say is always by analogy. That means when we talk about God, everything we say we recognize falls infinitely short of who he actually is, but it doesn't make it untrue. Postmodernism says everything I say about God is, is um, equivocal, meaning there's no bridge between my words and who God is. It's just pure dissonance. If that's the case, then Holy Scripture is meaningless, right? Right? The other option is to say, and this is where evangelicals often go, and it's not good theology, it's equivocal, meaning it's the same thing. No, no, uh, univocal, sorry, equivocal means opposite. Univocal means it's the same thing. When I say God, you know, it's exactly as God is. So when the Bible says that God has a backside, well, that must mean God has a backside. Well, if God's spirit, he doesn't have a backside, right? We have to use our brains a little bit, right? So what theologians throughout history have said is our, 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 our talk of God is analogical, meaning it is true, but it is true in, in the sense of like an analogy is true. You know, I love my wife. A mouse loves cheese. God is love. Are all of those statements true? Do all of those point to a reality called love? Yes, but God being perfect love in his triune life is so infinitely greater than my concept of love that my love for my wife is closer to a mouse's love of cheese than God's perfect love within himself. It doesn't make it untrue. It just means that we are always grasping at this magnificent reality that is just always beyond reach. But if it wasn't, then it wouldn't be who God is. And thank God, God has chosen to condescend to us and show us who he is in reality. Now, when we say God is power, what do we mean by that? Because often how we pray and how we approach God is is that it's a limited power, that it's a power among powers. But that, 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 that can't be the case. When God is, when we say that God is universal or eternal, not universal, eternal, 
What we mean is that God's essence and his existence are the same thing. For God to be is for God to be what God is. You and I have an essence and we have an existence. But our essence is not necessarily to exist. So my essence is, you know, I'm gangly. I've talked about this before, right? Gangly. And, you know, at 30, God said your hair is going to fall out and various other things. So very medium IQ, all those things, right? But at one time I wasn't. And at one time you weren't. And so God gave your being, being. But that can't be the case with God. If God is eternal, that means his essence, the what he is, and his existence, that he is, are the same thing. There is only one being that is like that. There is only one being whose very being is to be. Let, try to wrap your mind around that one for a second. Now, this is interesting. What happens when you start saying this is very interesting things happen. Some dominoes start falling logically. If God is the one who exists in his very being, then he doesn't become something over time. You and I become things over time. Our essence gets worked out within time. You know, at one time, I was, you know, 20 pounds heavier and a full head of hair. And Laura, you know, was like, I'm going to marry that guy. And now I'm me, right? (laughs) not quite the same. We change over time. But if God is eternal and God changes, that means he's just a never-ending sequence of events. That's illogical. That's what you call the, the, the infinite regress problem. That's just, have you ever heard it's just a stack of turtles all the way down? That's because that's a false idolatrous understanding of who God is. Now, this is a very popular theology today that God can change, that God suffers, but if you believe that, then, then you actually completely forfeit God's eternality. Because for God to be is to be his perfect, dynamic act. He is the pure act of existence. He is fully himself at all times. You can't add more of God to God so that he may become more God over time. He is the fullness of life, the fullness of being, the fullness of truth, the fullness of beauty, the fullness of justice, the fullness of wisdom, the fullness of knowledge all the time. See, this is what we see is that God is standing outside of the created realm so much so that he can hold it all together because All of our categories for how we can understand him fall apart when we see that he is the perfect act of existence himself. And what that means, teenagers, is that God is full sinned all the time. He's always cranked to 11. You can't add more to him. He is as grand, as great, as majestic as you can possibly get in the perfect life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is what God means by power. Our definition of power is he's just subtly stronger. He'll win, but he's in our realm of power. But when we think about God, is the one whose essence and existence are as identical, the one who is pure act, pure actuality. We see the one 
who is pure power himself. And so when that God says, I'll liberate you, there is no question mark behind it. And not only that, but this is the very one who we see in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the God who has chosen to come and liberate us in the Son of God. This is the one who is the Word of God, which means the power of God, the, the ordering principle of God, the one who structures all things as he holds it in his hand. This is the one who has come. And when he says, Lazarus, get up, it happens. There is no, you know, question. You know, you and I have to build things over time, right? We, we would have to, you know, be like uh, Frankenstein, right? We'd have to kind of figure out a way to get Lazarus to get up. When God says something, it happens. There is no time in which it needs to grow. That's how powerful God is. When God says that he's going to unite his people in one body, the seemingly impossible reality that people that are opposed to one another can be reconciled by Christ. When he says he will do it, it will happen. When he makes two people, one flesh in marriage, it happens. When he says, behold, I am making all things new, it happens. This is the God that we are talking about. This is the God of the scriptures, the one who can say the impossible, and the minute he says it, it happens. Now, why does that matter for us? I once had a friend, he said, God is so great and majestic, why would he ever listen to my prayers? I said, it's only because God is infinitely great and majestic that he can be infinitely present to us all. All of those omnis that are in the scriptures, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, that can only happen because God is the one who is perfect act. And therefore, he can be infinitely present to you in every one of your prayers. It doesn't wear him out at the end of the day. He doesn't need to take a break when it's all over because he is perfect life and act. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will be fed and will have eternal life. He is the only one that can actually say that. You and I were born hungry. You and I were born needing something outside of us to come into us to give us life. That's not part of the fall. Eating was part of God's creation mandate, or cre cre creation, not mandate, creation plan. And so what are we going to feast upon forever? The one source of life that never burns out, never diminishes, never grows faint, Christ Jesus himself. Uh, Everything that we long for in life, in our prayer life, in our life of asking, God, can you forgive me again? God, do you have enough patience for me? All of these questions come back to the question of, is God as powerful as he says he is? And the God of the scripture is actually infinitely more powerful than we can ever imagine. Now, it's important that he's not just powerful. It's important that he's also wise. It's one thing for God to be able to do whatever he wants, but does he do what is right? And the answer to that is yes. Look back at our text. He's not only infinite power, he's infinite wisdom, knowledge, and justice. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heaven with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured, or, or probably a better translation is directed or taught the spirit of the Lord? Or, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? How do we learn in life? Right? We need somebody to teach us. We need someone who's more wise than us to over time instruct us on what we need to know or what we need to learn to engage the world in wisdom and knowledge and in justice. But what did we just say about God? God is pure act. You can't add more God to God. You can't add more wisdom to wisdom himself. You can't add more knowledge to knowledge himself. You can't add more justice to justice himself. He is not judged by any standard outside of himself. Rather, he is the one that creates true standards upon which all of life is judged. But so often in life, what do we do? We do not treat God that way at all. Rather, we don't go to him seeking wisdom, seeking counsel. Rather, so often we tell him what he ought to have thought if he was instructed by someone as wise as us. We've seen this tragically in the history of our country where people fallaciously found justification for slavery in the scriptures. God, our economy depends upon this. You should have said this. And so we project our wisdom onto him. You know, we see this today in that we see a perfectly equitable society in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we try to collapse that reality into the present moment and we just make God the first Marxist. We superimpose upon God an unjust love of country that warrants nationalism. In our churches, we say, God, you just don't know how busy people in Littleton are. These standards of discipleship, no one can meet those. This is what you should have said in your scriptures. You should have cut people a bit more of a break. We sadly saw the bishops of England do this just this week when they imposed upon God's holy word a 21st century vision of sexuality and justified it in the eisegetical uh, taking, God is love, and then superimposed upon God their definition of love. We do this. And it's very easy to see what others do with this when others place their wisdom over God, but it's much harder to see when we do it ourselves. Or I think one that we often do is we just ignore God's wisdom. We think, God, you don't understand how cutthroat my office is. If I were as gentle as a dove, I'd be slaughtered out there. So I'm surely not going to do what you're asking me to do. Or we say, you know, we have a big decision in life and we don't even consult God in it. And yet, what do we see in our text? If we actually need knowledge, need wisdom, and need to see what true justice looks like, the only option is to look at the one who is knowledge, who is justice, who is wisdom himself. This is why I asked uh, Carrie to read the passage on Mary and Martha. 
Because what does Martha do? Martha does what we often do. We are so busy seeking wisdom by listening to every podcast we can get our hands on, reading every newspaper we, or we can see, uh, listening to every you know, major speaker there is on any aspect of wisdom or justice or knowledge, that we don't sit at the feet of the one who is wisdom and justice and knowledge. We busy ourselves going about the task of trying to be informed without slowing down and sitting in the presence of the one who is reality himself. Or is that just me? I spend far more time trying to be knowledgeable on things than I do simply sitting, praying, and receiving. Simply reading God's word and trusting that it actually has something to say for me today. Trusting that God's word is actually the one who is knowledge and is wisdom and is justice himself speaking to me by the power of his Holy Spirit. How many of us spend our time just like Martha, running about with seeking wisdom without seeking the one who is wisdom himself? I remember we did this an awful lot in seminary. We spent so much time trying to debate what, you know, Scripture actually taught. Or often, you know, where we ought to be engaged in social activity, forms of social justice. But it actually turned out to be rather deformative for my heart and my life. Because I confused that endeavor with piety and discipleship. And it's easy to do. It's easy to confuse thinking about God and thinking for God, for the world, with being in the presence of God himself. And so, as one person that is prone to this, as much as anyone in this room or more, I would simply encourage you that the posture of Mary is the true posture of wisdom. It's the true posture of knowledge. It's the true posture of actually seeking justice in this world, is first seeking the one who is justice the one who is knowledge, the one who is wisdom first. And then, of course, being filled up to be sent out into the world. It's not an either or, but there is a proper order. So who is our God? Who is the God that we serve? The God who is power. And therefore, he is the one, whenever he says it, it is. But not only that, he's the one who is wisdom, who is knowledge, who is justice. And he will guide us through this troubling life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are greater than we can imagine. Thank you that you never get boring, that we can never exhaust your beauty, your goodness, your power, your truth, your wisdom, your justice. Lord, would you slow us down that we might just sit in your presence and receive. Lord, give us the hearts of Mary to sit at your feet and to choose the better thing to the glory of your name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.